Hello, sci-fi and adventure fans, and welcome to episode two of Ash Bishop's Intergalactic Exterminators, Inc. I'm Gabe Shear, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. If you find yourself loving this book as much as we do, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway this week where one lucky winner will receive the full audiobook of Intergalactic Exterminators, Inc. for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter, and answer a quick survey, all of which are linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry, so make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy. Previously on Intergalactic Exterminators, Inc., Russ Wesley is offered a job with a freelance ecosystem preservation team. They work under government contracts relocating, or eliminating, alien creatures who have jumped ecosystems and are wreaking havoc in their new environments. It's exciting work, and the pay isn't bad. The only drawback is that chances are you'll die on the job. Seven, Russ. Behind the counter of the bookstore, Russ unfolded the contract and took another look. The same words jumped off the page, beginning upon the act of signing and ending with either termination or death, surrendering itself to a mandatory mind cleanse. He put the contract down and went outside on the front porch. Atara had left, with Nina following closely, still peppering her with questions. Morty's money was still there, a decent amount of it in loose change. Russ crouched over the welcome mat for a few minutes, picking up each coin, his mind lost in space. He went back into the store and dropped the money into the cash register. It's a start, he said under his breath. Then he looked at his shoes again. Simulacra, alien bug hunters, intergalactic space travel. It seemed like more than he could have ever dreamed possible. He had been bored exploring New Orleans. He doubted he would have the same problem in UAIB space. He opened the contract again. Farther down the page, he read, Inability to perform work for any reason will result in a legal forfeiture of all chattels, including but not limited to what the UAIB quantifies as grave necessities. The next section was labeled Personal Risk and Injury. If the undersigned requires medical care utilizing non-standard company resources, the undersigned agrees to perform the job without pay for an entire galactic cycle or until the cost of recovery is paid in full, whichever is longer. There were other headings. Required training gear during probation. Release of right to sue in the instance of permanent physical damage. Release of right to sue in the instance of theft, loss, and unanticipated death. And finally, release of right to end employment. He stopped reading about three-quarters of the way down the next page. He shook his head, drumming his fingers on the contract. Then he folded it carefully closed, slipped it into the backpack, and dropped both of them unceremoniously into the dumpster in the alley. 
no text messages, or SAS units, or intergalactic exterminators arrived for the rest of the day. None arrived the next day either, or the day after that. Each night in the shower, Russ scrubbed at the inky mess on his ankle hard enough to leave the skin around it red and raw. The nanobots wouldn't come off. The following Wednesday evening, he found himself on the roof of the mysterious universe working shoulder to shoulder with Bobby, the owner of the local Ace Hardware. The sun was setting and the sky was ablaze in orange. Bobby was about two decades Russ's senior. Most of his hair had receded away, and what was left was thin and white. It was incongruous with his youngish face, which was still handsome if you ignored the deep worry lines. When he saw Russ looking at the sunset, he paused a minute to look at it as well. I've been dreaming of getting my hands on that Merkel since the first time your grandfather showed it to me, he said. It's a fine gun, Russ agreed absently. It's not the reason I'm up here with you, Bobby said. The truth is I can't really afford to give away all this wood, much less help you do the work, even for a special weapon like that. Bobby shook his head. I wish it weren't so. We all felt awful when this place fell into disrepair. But every business in this town is going to crap, including mine. We're all barely staying above water. But you are helping, Russ pointed out. Yes, sir, Bobby said. Russ waited for him to explain further, but Bobby just started hammering again. If you help me get started, I can finish it myself. I worked drywall in Oregon for about six weeks, so I'm somewhat familiar, Russ told him. Only six weeks? Bobby asked. It might have been four. But I also did stucco for a month down in Florida, and I did some HVAC and non-union roofing for a while in Washington State. Your grandma told me that you were some kind of drifter. That's a good word for it, Russ said. He finally quit looking up at the sky, instead using the claw on his hammer to yank out a ruined board. Fuck, I'm jealous, Bobby told him. He opened a can of beer and took a long drink. Your grandpa was the same way, well into his sixties. Of course, he used this store as an excuse to go out and explore. He came back with quite a few rare books, rare trinkets, and rare guns. Russ finished his sentence for him. Just like that beautiful Merkel. I'm sorry your store is in trouble too, Russ said. You know, I don't have anything. Just these clothes I'm wearing. My car barely runs. Look at my shoes. I'm not really a person to be jealous of. I'm still jealous. I mean, I guess I could just walk away from it all. But there are so many people counting on me now. My wife, my kids, my employees, the church. That's how they get you, Russ said. It wasn't always this stressful, Bobby went on. But between Amazon and the Home Depot in Banville, I'm slowly going broke. Russ just shrugged. He knew he should be more sympathetic, but he had no idea how to help. He couldn't force people to stop shopping online any more than Bobby could, and his mind kept drifting to the SAS corpse in the dumpster no less than twenty feet from where they sat. Bobby had problems, sure, but they weren't trying to mind-wipe him. Norma poked her head up above the roof's overhang. She was standing on the electrical box in the alley, watching Russ and Bobby talk. How about less chatting and more hammering? 
I'm getting excited to get this fixed, she said. She had a laptop in her hands and she opened it. She looked at Bobby. Do you think your son would help me get our web portal open again? At least half our sales were online last year, but Clark was the one who handled it all. I just did the shipping. I can't figure out how the stupid thing works. Bobby doesn't like online shoppers, Russ told her. Bobby ignored him. My son's been struggling with his pepper crop, but I'll ask if he has the time. Then he nodded at Russ. Why not let this youngster do it? Norma cackled at the question, and even Russ had to smile. We have a family policy to not let Russ anywhere near computers, she explained to Bobby. I break them, Russ said, sometimes on purpose, usually by accident. Russ can break a computer faster than it takes most people just to turn them on. Russ went back to work ripping out the old roof and letting Bobby replace it with new decking. Bobby ended up staying much longer than he'd agreed to. When the sun got too low, Norma climbed on the box again and offered them both homemade cookies and lemonade. The two men sat side by side in the dusk, sipping lemonade. Russ felt his pocket buzz, but he left his phone alone. Job well done, Bobby finally said, glancing over their work. You did most of it, Russ told him. Russ reached out to shake Bobby's hand, and the pain in his ribs wrenched. You okay, son? Bobby asked. Russ nodded. He quickly popped the next to last of the pills Atara had given him, and the pain disappeared. He didn't really like to think about what would happen when they ran out. It was a mistake to be doing anything other than recuperating in bed. He knew he had more than a few broken bones. He should probably see a doctor, go straight to the ER over in Banville. But he had zero dollars in his pocket, and he couldn't remember the last time he'd had medical insurance. Plus, he didn't like the idea of being in a hospital bed, foggy from painkillers, if another SAS unit arrived to tear apart his brain. Bobby climbed down from the roof. Then Russ heard him climb back up again. I'll come back tomorrow and help you lay the felt, he offered. Only if you can, Russ told him. You need an extra-handed ace, let me know. Well, I appreciate that, Bobby said. He stared at Russ a minute, a strange look on his face. This is a gift, what you're doing to help your grandma. But take my advice. Avoid putting down roots as long as you can. Roots are just a fancy word for life-crushing responsibility. I didn't have this gray hair until I had roots. Russ nodded again, his hand on his ribs. He thought of the draconian contract, still folded up in the dumpster less than a hundred feet away. Russ's father had given him nearly the same advice when he graduated high school. Of course, Russ's father was better at taking that exact advice than anyone Russ knew. As a consequence, he hadn't been around for most of Russ's life. When he was around, He'd permitted Russ to do whatever he wanted. He'd taught Russ how to gamble, how to pick up girls, and even how to roll a joint. But he'd never cared much how Russ did in school. Nor was he willing to help when Russ found himself struggling with homework. In fact, he'd called high school a waste of good time and energy. Russ stayed in contact with his mom. But his parents had never married and his life of wandering had separated him semi-permanently from any information about his dad. Yes, he'd given him the same advice, but Russ's dad was a much different kind of man than Bobby. 
See you tomorrow, Russ, Bobby yelled, waving from the door of his beat-up GMC. Russ waved back. He watched the entire way as Bobby's truck took its long journey down Main, disappearing behind a copse of trees as it turned in the direction of the highway. He wondered which man he was more like, Bobby or his father. He was afraid he knew the answer. He sat on the roof alone for a moment longer, just thinking. Then he pulled the phone from his pocket and read the text. It said, How do you compare to a nice summer's day? You are more sexy and more legitimate. And I get excited to just be around you. Russ wrote back, Seems familiar. Nina, the Shakespeare book is not helping much. I've got more balloons to pop. Russ, sorry to hear that. Nina, but I left my scope on the white feather. Russ, I can bring it by tonight. Nina, at dialysis with my dad. Tomorrow, though. Nina, you sign the contract yet? Russ, maybe pretty soon. Nina, no sign of any simulacrum. Russ, nothing. Nina, still rather not meet at my house. Two miles north off Route 107. Russ, I'll be there. Nina, 4.30 tomorrow. Look for my truck. Russ tried to stop it, but he couldn't keep a smile from creeping across his face. 8. Russ Russ drove carefully down Route 107, making double sure not to hit any deer. He found Nina's truck parked just off the road and climbed slowly out of his grandma's mercury. Nina smiled when she saw he'd brought the white feather. She had a picnic blanket tucked under one arm and a six-pack of Coors beer hanging from her other hand. It was early evening, but the heat was back to being nearly unbearable. Nina was wearing a pair of jean shorts, a button-up shirt, and one of those cowboy hats girls wear, with the brims permanently pointing toward the clouds. Her shirt had a logo on it that read, Morty's Sporties. You just get off work? Russ asked. They began to walk together down a horse trail. Best day of work I've ever had, Nina said. You tell him to keep his hands to himself. Nina's face lit up with a grin. Not directly, she admitted. Actually, it has to do with your device. Check this out. Nina raised the side of her shirt so Russ could see the edge of her bra line. Her bra wasn't touching her skin, though. She had a heap of layers underneath. Half of the broken anklet was woven into the seam of her bra. I've spent the last four days studying it. I had two years in a pretty intensive electrical engineering program in Laramie. But this anklet? Nina trailed off as if words couldn't describe it. The rock you showed me. That was a power source, like a huge, dense battery. This is totally different, but no less amazing. It keeps itself powered, probably through a very advanced manipulation of magnetic waves. And if those waves weaken, it can be recharged by simple contact with any metal. We broke it in half, right? But when it's together in a loop, it appears to trap magnetic waves in an endless cycle, preserving the kinetic energy with far more efficiency than anything I've ever seen. I only tested one half at a time, there doesn't seem to be any way to put them back together, but even so, the energy retention and amplification rates it produced were off the charts. We could solve a lot of the Earth's problems with a few hundred more of these things. 
It's powered by perpetual energy? Russ asked. Almost. And what little power fades can be recharged by tapping it with a metallic compound? The only reason we were able to break it is because we used a metal chisel. We filled it too full of power, which shocked us and blitzed the device. So you put it in your bra? I was solving one of Earth's problems, Nina said, blushing slightly. I'm actually wearing four layers. A sports bra, a lining of rubber insulation, a thin mesh net, and my actual bra. My boobs are sweating like a pair of atheists at the pearly gates, but it was worth it. Whenever Morty would walk behind the counter, I'd slide the anklet forward so it came in contact with the layer of steel mesh, and they would power each other up. Russ thought for a moment, making sure he followed what she was saying. You electrified your breasts, he said. Yep, she raised her fist triumphantly. Do you find that utterly shocking, she asked. Did I hear two Ds in there, Russ asked. Double Ds, yes, Nina said. Russ laughed. Like everyone, he enjoyed a good round of electrified boob puns. He thought for a moment. Titty, titty, bang, bang, he said without much confidence. Not terrible, Nina said, nodding. What happened to Morty, Russ asked. He brushed his hands against them twice, once reaching for a stapler, once while finding a knot in my lower shoulder blades that had to be massaged. Nina laughed. The first time, he just nicked the electrified net. It zapped him, but probably no more than a normal electrostatic shock. The second time, he really dug his finger in and, well, the shock hit him so hard, I believe he may have pooped his pants. She cackled triumphantly. Then she nudged the anklet forward with her elbow, powering it up. Want to try it out? She asked Russ mischievously. With an act of some willpower, he waved off the offer and continued down the path. It was funny to be talking about such a personal issue in service of avoiding the real subject, Russ's job offer. He knew she was bursting with curiosity, but the truth was the contract was still folded up neatly in the dumpster. They crested a second hill. It broke sharply downward, and the view of the entire valley was spectacular. I usually like to go down the other side. Nina pointed to another path, far more overgrown, which wove down the hill and through some dense trees. There's a beautiful waterfall less than a quarter mile from here. But I'm already too hot. Let's have a beer. In that moment, together on the hill, Russ finally had a chance to give her the last of the details about the night in the forest. Wait, the cat was how big? Nina asked again. About the size of an F-250. That's why you didn't sign the contract? It's too dangerous? Russ shook his head no. He stared out over the tops of the trees. They were waving in the slight wind. Russ couldn't hear any of the normal chirping of birds or strumming of crickets or even the crunch of leaves as they journeyed from the tree branches to the ground, surfing along on the gentle breeze. I know you want to talk about it, he said finally. Why didn't you take the job? Nina sounded agitated. It isn't that I don't want to go to space. I want to explore space more than you do. Debatable. I just know myself. It isn't a good idea to sign a contract for life. 
I don't have a job. I don't have a mortgage or even a month-to-month lease. I don't have a credit card. I'm piss-poor at obeying formal authority. Russ held up his flip phone. I use a burner phone specifically so I can throw it away when too many people get my number. I value my independence and my freedom. Russ shrugged. Now that we know what's out there, I'll find a way to get to space. I just don't want to do it as an indentured servant. It must be nice, Nina said quietly. Her tone sounded sharper than Russ expected. To not have any responsibilities. To not have to care about anyone else. Well, Russ let himself trail off. I can see why your grandma's bookstore is in so much trouble. It would be tough to keep a business going with your husband dying and no loved ones willing to help. I guess that's why you and I never met in the hospital during the last months of your grandfather's stay in the hospital. Oof, Russ said, trailing off again. He didn't have a decent response to her accusation. For a moment, he was lost in his own mind, trying not to picture his grandma sitting alone in a cold, hyper-hygienic hospital room, watching the love of her life slowly die. If Russ had been busy working, going to school, raising kids, at least he would have had some kind of excuse. Instead, he had just been wandering around the American South, accomplishing nothing. It was Nina's turn to be silent. Russ wished she would say something. I know I should have come sooner, he admitted. I know it. But I am here now. That's true, Nina said. It's a start, I guess. Russ stared at Nina. He could see the pain of her own situation just behind her eyes. Listen, I can't shut up, Nina said. Hey, I, no, shush. Nina rolled into a crouch. What do you hear? Russ shut up and listened for a moment. Somehow the forest had become even more quiet. Nothing, he admitted. I've been coming here for years, Nina whispered. Nothing is not normal. Neither moved. Russ stayed seated and Nina held her crouch. The forest was awash in silence. It was so quiet out there in the gloaming that the sudden heavy static erupting from both of their cell phones was all the more jarring, though not quite as jarring as the old balding guy in a gray business suit off in the distance, tromping through the mud, pushing his way between the branches toward them. We should have locked the lid on that dumpster, Nina whispered, but Russ had rolled to his feet before she even finished her sentence. He checked the load in the white feather and drew a bead between the SAS unit's eyes through Nina's burris scope. No bullet holes. It's a different unit. They must all look the same. There was a crunching sound behind them, and Russ swiveled the barrel 180 degrees. Behind them stood another SAS, identical in appearance. Same bald head, same weak chin, same business suit. He was standing at the bottom of the small hill, staring back up at them. Uh-oh, Nina said. What do you want? Ross yelled down at the one closest to them. Holding the gun in his hand gave him a certain confidence. Are you Russell Wesley? The simulacra asked. No, Russ told him. Russ could feel the thing's gaze run along the length of his body. He heard crunching sounds, wingtips on fallen leaves, and realized the other bot was approaching from the back. His name is Stephen Applebum, Nina said. We've never heard of Russell Wesley. Russ risked a quick look at Nina, and she shrugged, like that was the best name she could think of. 
You are Russell Wesley, the one moving in from the trees said. It must have been scanning the inky blot still stuck to his ankle. Your identity has been confirmed. Please do not attempt any violence. Please do not attempt escape. You are mandated to remain still by the governance of UAIB law. I'm just going to move my finger, Russ said, pulling the trigger. The kneecap of the SAS at the bottom of the hill exploded. The bot collapsed at a funny angle, striking hard against the warm earth. It didn't cry out in pain. It didn't make any sound at all. It just started to zombie crawl toward Russ and Nina, its hands digging deep into the dirt. Russ jacked a new bullet into the chamber and turned to the guy at the edge of the trees. That robot had covered a lot of distance. His arms pumped in perfect mechanical rhythm as he sprinted right at them. Until Russ gently squeezed the trigger, and that SAS unit's kneecap exploded too. Russ went back to scanning the trees. Atara had said three units, maybe more, would come after him. But Russ could only see the trees shaking in the gentle wind. Another crunching sound dragged Russ's gaze back to the guy at the base of the hill. Nina stood over him, a huge rock between her hands. The SAS unit's head was squished under the rock. It wouldn't stop coming, she cried. Russ swung the rifle barrel back toward the original SAS unit. Though he knew better, its human appearance made him pause just for a moment. The rifle sight moved back and forth the short distance between the SAS unit's eyes until Nina let out a short scream. Russ swung back in the other direction again to see three more men advancing, identical to all the others. They must have come quickly out of the line of trees because they weren't ten feet from Nina and closing fast. The white feather recoiled and the closest one spun off its feet, thudding solidly in the dirt. Nina hurled the large rock at one, but it was too heavy to aim properly, and the robot sidestepped it. It closed the gap and grabbed Nina by the arms. The other circled around and scooped up her feet. She struggled hard against the one at her elbows while trying to kick free from the one holding her legs. Russ held the rifle steady. He knew he wasn't going to miss. He never did. But she was kicking around so much, he couldn't take the chance. Hold still, he yelled. Are you kidding me? She screamed back. Hold still for just one second, he demanded. Don't shoot, Nina yelled back. They're too close. Nina couldn't fight and yell very effectively, and one of the SAS units took the chance to wrench her in more tightly. One held her hips while the other had its arms wrapped tightly around her upper torso. She started twisting at an odd angle, like a wriggling fish. She was clawing at her own ribcage. Russ kept the gun trained on the three of them, waiting for anybody to hold still long enough that he could get off a clean shot. Then Nina did hold still. As the robot leaned over her, there was a tremendous hiss, a long electronic discharge. Russ hadn't fired a shot, but the robot shook for a moment, electricity coursing through its body. Then it fell down and didn't move again. Nina fell heavily beside it, and Russ saw the anklet, half-wrapped in rubber, clutched like a knife in her hand. Grunting, she kicked herself free from the other unit, then delivered two more powerful jabs with the anklet, straight to its chest. The blast loosened the thing's elbow joint, and its left forearm hung limply. She finished it off with another swipe of the anklet, jamming the device against its skull with a resounding pop. She wanted me to try that. Russ thought as he slid the box magazine out and checked the count. He had two bullets left. He didn't pack, expecting to have to repel a wave of android bankers. 
Bullet one split the forehead of the first guy on the far side of the hill, who was still dragging himself determinedly toward them. Russ checked the magazine again, even though he knew there was only one bullet left. Then three new SAS units emerged from the trees. Two or three more units, my ass, Russ mumbled. The new simulacra stood shoulder to shoulder. Confirmation of Russ's identity seemed to have removed the last of their social restraint. Forgoing any semblance of human behavior, they lurched toward him in triple synchronicity, their legs pumping, their arms chopping effortlessly through the thick brush. 9. Russ And Russ and Nina ran away even faster. It turned out that a mammal feeling real dread can outpace an SAS unit from wherever the hell by a pretty safe margin. Nina reached her truck first, got in, and fired the engine. She kicked open the passenger door and yelled out to Russ, Get in! I'll follow you in my car, Russ shouted, launching himself into his grandma's mercury. It looked for a moment like Nina was going to climb out of her truck and into his sedan, but the pursuing SAS units reached the edge of the road, and she buried her foot in the gas so hard that her tires kicked a shower of dirt down onto the hood of Russ's car. He tore across the road onto Old Highway 107. He followed Nina for less than a mile. Then he wrenched on the e-brake and swerved into a savage U-turn. There were three reasons why he did it. First, his grandma's car was almost out of gas. He'd been using it instead of his own car, specifically because his own car was completely out of gas. Maybe, Russ considered, there was a life out there where he didn't have to always worry about being out of fucking gas. The second reason was that the run had aggravated his injuries. His ribs, his wrist, his thigh were all throbbing. He had broken bones, maybe a handful of them, but he'd been ignoring them with scarily effective space-age painkillers. The very last pill was buried deep in his pocket, and he managed to slide it into his mouth as the car slid to a stop. But the biggest reason for his sudden change of direction was that the Evanstown community trash trucks had cruised by his and Nina's fleeing vehicles, headed toward Main Street. It was Wednesday, trash collection day. Russ wasn't sure if Nina missed his dangerous U-turn, or if she was too scared to stop and turn around herself. Either way, her dusty old pickup kept going, and he saw it turn out of sight in his rearview mirror as he buried the gas pedal in the floor. It took him 20 minutes to cover the 30 miles back to his grandma's store. The old mercury was wheezing, popping, and coughing as he swerved in and out of the lanes, veering around the lumbering trash trucks. The mercury ran out of gas just before he reached the alley behind the mysterious universe. As Russ climbed from the sedan, his pocket buzzed. Why did we split up? Are you alive? Russ didn't respond to Nina's texts. He was busy sprinting to the dumpster, then digging around inside, pulling the camouflaged backpack free from where it had gotten tangled with the simulacra's broken right leg. The backpack had a huge peach-colored stain on the bottom, but it seemed to be unopened. There was an envelope taped to the back door of the bookstore, but Russ ignored it, sneaking inside with the backpack on his shoulder. He was sliding the lock on the back entrance shut with adrenaline-charged hands when the first trash truck turned the corner down the alley. He took the backpack to the checkout counter and began to unpack it.
There were twelve metal tubes inside, each emblazoned with a faint series of lines, like machine-etched runes. He studied the pattern, trying to decide if it was bilateral symmetry. Then he gave up and lined the tubes up on the counter by size. They weren't all identical. Some of the ends were squared and some rounded. In fact, each one would only fit together with the end of one other correspondingly sized tube. He started pushing the tubes together, twisting and locking them. The rune lines matched up, and with each connected pole, the thing grew bigger and bigger. He worked quickly, the faint memory of putting together a model rocket from his childhood flitting across his mind. Most of the metal tubes telescoped to two or three times their packed height. The structure grew, getting so big Russ worried that people would look in the window and wonder what he was up to. He gathered up the remaining parts and carried the whole thing down the back hallway toward the storage room, where he'd initially found the Obin's stone. He turned the alien tube structure sideways and guided it through the doorway. He had to lean the structure against the wall to keep it upright. In the cramped space of the small room, he slid together the last few pieces, then stepped back to look at his work. The whole thing was about the size and shape of a doorway, maybe seven feet tall by three feet wide. It had tripod legs to keep it stable and wedged tightly against the wall. It covered roughly a third of the entire south side of the storage room. Unlike the anklet, it didn't look entirely alien. It could have been the ad hoc backdrop of an avant-garde photographer or a madman's lawn sculpture. Russ waved his hand through the doorway-sized opening between the tubes, and nothing happened. Unpack that backpack and wait, Atara had said. Russ stood back against the other wall, his hands in his pockets, wondering what would happen next. When nothing did happen, he went outside to clear his head with some fresh air. The sun was quickly setting and the streets were deserted except for a few local kids loitering in front of the laundromat, failing to land kickflips on their skateboards. He didn't know how long he had before the SAS units arrived, but he could feel the precious minutes slipping away. He turned back to the front door and noticed it also had an envelope taped to it, identical to the one he'd passed on the back door. He grabbed the envelope and, still conscious of the ticking clock, he tore it open. Dear Mrs. Norma Wesley, with all due courtesy, we ask that future correspondence be through email or fax, and not via handwritten letter. Our client has carefully considered your request to waive the contractually mandated late penalties because of circumstances of bereavement. While they appreciate you as a long-standing tenant, legally speaking, you'll either have to provide them a portion of the monies owed with consideration toward the penalty-adjusted interest rate, or find some other way to remain close to the memory of your loving husband. Thank you for understanding. Respectfully, Logan Trent Esquire, Trent, Cole, and Kirch. Russ carried the note back to the counter, reading it once more. His grandma's lemonade jug from the day he and Bobby had repaired the roof was still there. She'd washed it carefully and turned it upside down to dry. Next to it was the plate still half full of cookies. Absently, Russ took a cookie and ate it. Then he grabbed a few more and stuffed them in his pocket. Then he read the letter again. I get it, universe, he said to no one in particular. I'll sign the fucking contract. The storage room was cramped now, with the giant tube structure inside. 
He had sat down on a box of rare Native American curse stones and took a long look at the device. Then he ran his hand along the tubing, gliding the length of the frame. His fingers traced the runes, which now ran along the entire frame. He mumbled to himself, I don't care about anyone. That's not fair. I care about people. The individual tube sections were now locked into place. There were no knobs, buttons, anything. He had to fight a crazy impulse to search the internet for how to activate an alien tube structure. He unfolded the contract. Maybe he needed to sign it before the device would activate. He scratched his finger along the top, and the motion registered as a mark on the document. He hovered the same finger over the signature line and pinched his eyes tightly shut. From his pocket, his phone buzzed faintly. A nonlinear circuit element coming in contact with a wave pulse. The SAS units were getting closer. Wait just a second, he said to himself. He folded the contract back up and stuffed it into the backpack, unsigned. His mind made a connection. Rocks with enough juice to power a city. That's what Nina had said about the Obin's stone. He had a rock that generated great power. He had a tube structure with no power. Come on, Russ. It can't be that simple, can it? He muttered. He grabbed the Obin's stone from his pocket and thrust it through the opening between the tubes. Nothing happened. He tried running the Obin's stone along the structure while turning it slowly in his hand. He couldn't tell if the veins on the stone were pulsing very faintly or if it was just his imagination. At seven feet in height, the topmost tube was nearly at the ceiling. He slid the stone along its underside. The veins in the stone did seem to glow brighter, though very, very faintly. In this new pale light, he could see hundreds, maybe thousands of shallow, interconnected runes along the bottom half of the topmost tube. He put the rock back in his pocket and slid his hands along the tube. He could not feel the runes. To the touch, the tubing was just cold, unvarnished, lightweight metal. The feedback from his cell phone was growing louder. As he continued fumbling with the structure, the topmost tube shifted very slightly. Got you, you son of a bitch, he said. He spun the top tube, slowly at first, then with more force. Only the top half of the tube moved. The bottom stayed in place, revealing a hollow four-inch cradle. There was a mechanical hum, and suddenly, the rock in his pocket was glowing so much he could see the vein lines through the material of his jeans. Progress, he said to himself. Volatile alien energy that might blow up the store, but also progress. Russ slipped the Obin stone out of his pocket again, measuring its size against the open space inside the split tubing. It was a close match. He held his breath and dropped the stone carefully into the cradle. The hum grew louder, and suddenly, the center of the entire structure lit up a brilliant blue. The color swam in a rolling quantum pattern. Russ grinned triumphantly. He squinted his eyes, expecting pain, and slowly reached his fingertips into the pattern. He felt a faint warmth, like reaching into a toaster oven. He pushed his hand through to the wrist, then lost his nerve and pulled it back again. His cell phone fired another blast of static, this one louder and longer. Russ pushed his arm all the way to the elbow, but all he felt was the back wall of the storage room and the same sensation of faint warmth. Russ reached up and shook the half-tube. Maybe the stone wasn't completely set in it. 
The stone fell into place with a click. The blue quantum pattern surged, and the light bulb illuminating the storage room over Russ's head burst into a thousand shards. He ducked as glass rained down into his hair. At the same time, he heard the breaker box in the alley outside pop all its circuits simultaneously. Then he heard the skateboarders outside shout as the streetlights burst. He heard other circuit breakers and transformers all along the alley pop. He heard cars screech and honk as they braked suddenly, fenders thumping together in a terrible crunch. Whoops, Russ said under his breath. He could see under the crack in the door that the store was nearly dark. It was in sharp contrast to the structure, which now hummed with tremendous light and power. Ha! Nina! Told you! Didn't even need to sign the contract, Russ said aloud to no one. Then he reached his hand through one more time, and something yanked hard from the other side. He found himself surrounded fully by the glowing blue, and goosebumps rose across every inch of his skin. His hair stood on end and his arms and legs tingled, but the goosebumps didn't stop rising. They pulled and pulled, dragging his skin, his muscles, his bones up and away from where he felt his body should be. A deep, warm sensation bloomed inside what was left of his stomach, a yellow sun blossoming there in his gut, so warm that fire shot from his eyeballs and the tips of his toes. It felt surprisingly good, heat exploding out of every nerve. It felt so good, he thought it might tear him in half. And then his body started to cool. The molecules slowed down their crazy dance. His skin recontracted, bringing his muscles and bones back in their proper order. His lungs gasped for oxygen, and he realized he was on his knees in hard, gritty white sand. The sky over his head was a deep, cloudless purple. He took his first breath of stale, thin air and knew immediately that he'd made a terrible mistake. 10. Nina Why did we split up? Are you alive? Nina waited for Russ to respond to her texts. Son of a bitch, she said when there was no answer. I hope he's not dead. Dorina Tibedohosenzada, her mother called. Come down from the loft this instant. Nina glanced down through the small square opening in the barn loft at the dirty, hay-covered floor. Her mother stared back at her, her elegant French-Canadian features stitched together in clear annoyance. Catherine Francis Hosenzada, what do you need? Nina asked her mom. Do we really have the money to be ordering takeout? I thought you were better than this. Nina's mom held a plastic bag in the air. Nina could see the white rice container through the plastic, as well as the outline of a fortune cookie. Nina reached down through the opening in the loft and snatched the bag away. She set it down next to a lit propane lantern. On the other side of the lantern was a Mauser K98 sniper rifle on a tripod, its nose pointed out the small barn window. Next to that was an open romance novel lying flat on the straw. Nina waited for a moment, hoping her mom would simply go back inside the house. But her mom stayed on the floor below, tapping her foot and clearing her throat. Nina glanced through the opening again. Would you mind going back in the house, locking the door and turning off all the lights? Nina asked her. I'm not in the mood for your jokes, Catherine said. 
your father isn't either. He could barely eat the meal I fixed tonight. You weren't anywhere to be found, and then Nancy shows up at the door with takeout. She shook her head, at a loss for words. Nina's mom was at a loss for words a lot these days. She was shaking her head a lot, too. Are you wearing a Kevlar vest? Nina stared silently at her mom. Her mom stared silently back at her. Then, without another word, her mom turned and left the barn, too tired to possibly want to know why Nina would be wearing Kevlar. Nina moved back to the barn window and raised a pair of night vision goggles to her eyes. She watched her mom stomp back to the main house. The older woman moved stiffly, her shoulders as tight as a drum. Nina ran the goggles along the edge of the trees surrounding her property, scanning for robots in business suits. Then she shifted her view back to the main house, where she knew her father would be sitting at the window, staring silently out across the dark expanse of the front yard. Pithu Faras Hosenzada was always there these days. In the early stages of his illness, he'd been able to work, but he'd gone out on disability just six months after the initial diagnosis. He'd worked as Banville and Evanstown's only commercial real estate broker, almost entirely on commission, so the disability check sent down from Cheyenne was a lot lower than what anyone would have anticipated. For a while, they'd had a satellite TV package, and he'd sit, coughing, in his easy chair in the living room, watching Persian channels on the Tamasha Kane network. Sometimes, when she'd return from college for weekend visits, Nina would watch TV with them. Even though she found the programming corny as hell, it was still fun to see so many other people with thick, wavy hair and skin as dark as hers and her father's. Around fall of last year, Nina came to realize she needed to return home full-time and pitch in however she could. The same day she arrived, men from Banville in gray coveralls came and took away the satellite dish. Now her father mostly just sat in the window, his hands folded neatly in his lap. In the green-gray of the night vision goggles, Pithu looked like a ghost. His eyes glowed white, and his skin, grown pasty and covered in dark splotches by the failure of his kidneys and liver, shined back at her against the dark curtains. I can't let him die, she thought for the one thousandth time that week. Nina watched him until she couldn't bear to anymore. This was usually when a sort of blanket of sadness would settle in over her. But in that moment, she felt something else instead. Sure, the familiar sensations of anxiety and helplessness were there, but they were mixed with a new, less familiar sensation. Excitement. Less than an hour ago, she had bashed a cyborg into submission with a rock. Two hours before that, she had used an alien source of perpetual energy to shock the shit out of Morty. A smile slipped across Nina's face. She might still be broke. Her dad might still be in his sad seat by the window. But so much else had changed since Russ had waltzed into Bum's sandwich emporium, the Oban's stone stuffed in his pocket. Nina realized she was still holding her phone. She put it down and picked through the plastic bag to open the rice container and the Kung Pao. She'd managed to fork a flavorless bite into her mouth when she suddenly remembered the sound her cell phone had made when an SAS unit got close. 
a nonlinear circuit element coming in contact with a wave pulse. She was up in the loft, vigilantly on lookout, and it wasn't necessary. She could use the phone as an early warning device. Heck, if she amplified it, she could use it to scan for the location of active SAS anywhere in the area. All it would need was a big antenna and a continual source of power. Nina shuffled the anklet half out of her pocket and turned it over in her hand. She checked for a text from Russ one last time, then she bagged up the Chinese food, climbed down the wooden staircase, and went to work. Catherine pushed her way into the ad hoc lab, just as Nina was building the antenna by fusing together two pieces of metal fencing. Nina didn't hear her approach. Ironically, she was in a rush, worried that the arc welder was making so much noise she wouldn't be able to hear the arrival of the SAS. She finally caught sight of her mom from the corner of her eye, but she couldn't turn around for fear of losing the ground on the welder. Both her phone and the anklet were on the floor at her feet, attached to a length of copper wire ending in the heads of disassembled jumper cables. Once she finished the antenna, she planned to clip on the power source, strike the anklet lightly with something metal, and the whole device would be ready for what she called a smoke test. Her mom shuffled across her view. I'm sorry I yelled at you, she said. You deserve a takeout meal every night of the week for all that you've done. I've just been so uptight for a year, Nina said, finishing her sentence. I know the sacrifice you're making just to be here. If you really do need to go back to Laramie, I, I think you should. I can handle things with your dad. It's really not that bad, and with a little luck, Nina shut down the arc welder. The flame snuffed out with a dramatic popping sound. I would never leave you to do all this on your own, Mom. Nina's mom brushed the backs of her hands across her right eye. She turned to look at the exit. Then she turned back again. Well, thank you. These came today, her mom said, holding out flowers and candy. You can just leave it all on the table or throw it in the trash. I opened the card, Catherine said. Nina raised her welding goggles. She tried not to let any of the worry she was feeling show on her face. What did it say, she asked. It was a poem, a really weird version of Romeo and Juliet in the garden, I think. Catherine looked closer at her daughter's worried face. Does this bother you? It's poorly written, but still sort of romantic. The card wasn't signed. Do you know who left these? I've got an idea. Catherine stared at her, eyebrows arched. I think it's Morty, Nina admitted. Morty Forty? Morty Forty, your boss? Nina nodded. She tried to restart her welder, but the thing betrayed her, refusing to relight. Nina, he's not your boss anymore. Starting this minute, you have to quit. I can't, obviously. Of course you can. We'll make money some other way. How? Catherine gestured furtively, her hands moving in small circles. Nina smiled at her. It's okay, Mom. I can handle an old guy's attention. 
I'll work for him. I'll take your shifts. Do you see that alligator clip on the ground? Could you hand it to me? Nina asked. Her mom kneeled and picked up the copper wire leading to the anklet. Is this going to zap me? Not yet, Nina said. Then she grinned to diffuse her mom's newest alarmed expression. Just hand it to me and hold this antenna for a second. And no, you're not taking my work shifts. Catherine held out the antennae tentatively. Nina secured the base she'd created around the bottom of the antenna, allowing it to stand on its own. She adjusted the grip around the base, so the antenna could still swivel in whatever direction she pointed it. Then she scooped up the alligator clips from the floor and motioned for her mom to step back to the edge of the doorway. Hand me the hammer, please. Catherine handed her the rubber mallet, but Nina shook her head. No, the other one, with the metal head. Nina, I'll take the shifts. Are you hoping to move in on Morty? You're so pretty, Mom, I do like your chances. Catherine made fake barfing sounds. Nina turned back to look at her again. You already work full time. You cook. You drive dad to the hospital every day, help him get dressed, help him use the bathroom. You're not adding another part-time job working for a... Nina tried to think of the right word. If she called Morty a pervert or gropey, her mom would never let her go to work again. And they needed the paycheck. Working for a lusty old fellow, she said finally. What if he tries to kiss you? He's married. Once the clips were in place and her mom was safely away from the device, Nina drew back the hammer, ready to power up Russ's anklet for the third time in 24 hours. If he does, I'll take care of it, Nina said. She brought the hammer down hard, and the lab went completely dark. What? Catherine let out a short gasp. You really know how to drive home a point. The sun had dropped behind the mountain range, and no moon shone that evening. Without any ambient light from the city, they were in total darkness. Nina could hear her mom, but couldn't see her. Nina listened for a moment longer. The LED lights she'd installed were silent, but the one old-fashioned incandescent she'd kept for nostalgia was fizzling. It was the sound of the filament frying itself under tremendously high heat. That wasn't me, Nina said. That was electrical feedback greater than I've ever... She trailed off as the thought occurred to her. Not even a military-grade electromagnetic pulse blast could send electricity into the grid with enough force to slow-fry the filament in a bulb. She only knew one thing that might be capable of that kind of power, and Russ was carrying it around in his pocket. Nina clutched the hammer as she rushed out to the edge of the property. As she passed her father's window, he looked out at her, his face illuminated in the glow from his cell phone his eyes still white in the darkness. Nina tried to give him a reassuring smile, but she knew it was too dark for him to see her expression. She climbed over the fence that ran the length of their house and found herself at the top of a small hill. It was a spot she visited often as a kid to look down on the whole expanse of the tiny city of Evanstown. Right now, all that she could see below her was darkness. A few seconds later, the confused sounds of car horns broke the silence, far in the distance. 
Nina peered into the black, right at the point where she knew Norma's bookstore was. What in the hell is he up to, she wondered. 11. Russ Russ sucked at the air, but it felt like he was trying to draw a breath through a long, thin straw. The sickening sound of wheezing filled his ears, and he was startled to realize he was the one making it. With each heavy breath, his lungs ached and his chest shook. His hands, covered in a film of white dust, pounded at his own chest. Somehow, he was outside, kneeling on a darkened hillside. Russ grabbed at a nearby boulder to stabilize himself. He closed his eyes and concentrated on the wisps of oxygen that were entering his lungs with each heavy breath. He was still alive, he reminded himself. The oxygen was still eking its way into his bloodstream. Sparse green brush grew around him. It sparkled with blue and orange blossoms, their bright colors striking against the purple sky. He climbed shakily to his feet, still sucking at the thin air like a newborn baby. The thing in his grandma's storage room had dragged him through a hole in the universe and spit him out here. But where was here? Russ could feel his body weaken with each breath. His eyes searched the sky for a moon, but instead, a field of unfamiliar stars stretched out before him, peppering the dark purple atmosphere with faint light. A stronger illumination came from the device behind him, which hummed softly. A second later, the humming sputtered to a stop, and the blue light snuffed out. Russ lurched back through the opening, but instead of being transported away, he landed with a thud on the other side of the rock outcropping. The tube structure had clearly powered down. Russ's breath caught even more in his throat as he realized that his only means of escape had just fizzled away. I could die here, he realized. Soon! With trembling hands, he fumbled his cell phone out of his pocket and switched on the flashlight. He heard a noise, something fairly large dragging itself across a nearby rock. Russ pointed his phone in the direction of the sound. A medium-sized creature, maybe 40 pounds total, stared back at him with large, dilated eyes. The creature perched on the top of the ridge, blinking hastily and throwing up a claw to ward off the unwelcome light. It opened its mouth and burped out a small screech that was half bird, half rodent. Russ lowered the light, shining it on the deep black granite boulder that the winged creature stood on. The rat bird continued to squawk indignantly at Russ. Sorry, big guy, Russ gasped. He didn't dare switch off the light completely. He couldn't tell if the bird was predator or prey, and he sure as hell wasn't going to simply hope for the best. As he felt himself easing back into a defensive stance, Russ was hit with a spasm of coughing, the obvious result of the thin air. The creature squawked again. Sorry, Russ gasped again. I won't hurt you if you promise to keep those claws away from me. He used his most soothing voice. It seemed to reach the creature. It cocked its head like a bird, staring at him warily from its huge right eye. Russ glanced around, turning slowly in a circle. He was going to need to find more oxygen-rich air somehow, but without a moon in the sky, Everything beyond the light of his cell phone was shaded in a haze of semi-darkness. He turned around to examine the tube structure. He ran his hands over the device, looking for some way to activate it. He found the cradle at the top where the Obin's stone went, but it was empty, and the stone he had had was still in the storage room back on Earth. 
Russ heard more scraping, and he swiveled the light in another 180-degree motion. A second set of huge eyes popped into view. It was another bird rodent. It shuffled next to the first, and they both looked at Russ, their expressions a comic exaggeration of distrust. Russ patted the front of his pants to show them he was unarmed, and he felt the squish of Norma's homemade cookies. He carefully drew one of the cookies out and held it in front of the creatures. These are a special recipe, he told the creatures, only available in Wyoming. Russ broke off an edge of the cookie and tossed it onto the rock ledge where the birds sat. Both aliens looked at the crumbs, their eyes wide with fear. Maybe you can tell me where civilization is, Russ asked the creatures. Buildings? Oxygen? Russ saw no sign of intelligence in either animal's eyes. Then the second bird creature craned its face forward and snapped the cookie off the ledge, gobbling it down in a single motion. Russ was still searching its face. He saw the creature's eyes shift suddenly, from distrust to immediate clawing hunger. Russ tossed a second part of the cookie, and the creature caught it, its razor-sharp beak slicing through the thin air. Suddenly, the other creature was moving closer, its eyes large, appealing. There was a rustling of wings. Then a third bird creature appeared. Then a fourth. And a fifth. Russ took a step back until his shoulders touched the frame of the tube structure. The bird rodents pressed forward, leaping over and around their granite ledge, cooing in a discordant melody. The one in front had the courage to snatch at what was left of the cookie in Russ's hand, and Russ felt its beak slice into his palm, opening a long cut. He instinctively jerked the food and his injured hand in the other direction. The creature's eyes narrowed, its head bobbing to follow his hand. Its expression said, you owe me the rest of the cookie. Why aren't you cooperating? The creature's cooing brought more scraping and more bird rats. Russ felt dizzy from the thin air, but he managed to snap the second cookie into ten or so pieces and hurtled them away. The pack of creatures flew after the pieces, smashing against each other, snarling and snapping. Russ knew instinctively that he only had a few seconds before the creatures would return, demanding more sugary goodness. This is it, he thought. I'm going to die here, packed to death by an angry mob of alien scavenger rat pigeons. The creatures finished the last cookie scrap and turned back toward him, hopping in his direction, their eyes bright with vicious hunger. Russ scooped up a rock from the ground and held it carefully in his closed fist. Before the first creature could reach him, he hauled back and threw the rock as hard as he could. The closest creatures leaped in the air, trying to snatch it from its trajectory, but Russ had applied just enough force to crest the edge of the highest beak. The bird rats all scrambled after the rock, hurtling themselves in the direction of its flight, climbing over each other in their haste. Russ understood that the trick wouldn't work twice. But when they reached the darkness where the rock had landed, the whole pack burst into the air, flapping their wings in a mad rush. They took off with clumsy avian hysteria, feathers exploding in every direction. From the darkness, a creature of unimaginable horror appeared. It had a bird rat in its hands, and it was tearing the creature apart as if it was made of paper. It chewed feather, flesh, muscle, and bone with equal enthusiasm. The new beast towered over Russ, at least 17 or 18 feet tall, a moving wall of broad shoulders and rippling muscles. As it stepped into the glow of the cell phone, 
Russ once again instinctively lowered the light out of perfect, unadulterated fear, layered atop the impulse to hide the creature's indignity, to protect them both from the sheer repulsiveness of its face. The thing only had one eye, and it was glassy and small, almost like a child's marble, barely visible behind puffy pink flesh. It had no ears, not even the genetic memory of ear holes. The side of its face dripped with doughy overlapping folds of skin. Only its nose was prominent, an enormous, vacillating vacuole. Its single nose hole climbed upward, searching for Russ's scent. As it smelled the air, it took lumbering steps forward, moving closer and closer to where Russ clung to the powerless tube structure. The cycloptic creature lumbered right up to Russ, its glassy eyes shifting sightlessly in his direction. It leaned over, bringing its nose hole to the top of Russ's six-foot-two-inch frame. As the huge, gnarled nose sniffed at his forehead, Russ knew that he needed to breathe soon or his lungs would collapse. He felt the tickle in his throat grow until it was dry and pounding. His systems were fighting against each other. His lungs told his body, breathe deeply or die. But his gut told his body not to make a sound, not to move an inch. He gasped in a large breath. The creature flinched. Then it flung its powerful arms forward, swinging blindly but still managing to smash them into Russ's chest. The pummeling knocked him completely off his feet. He slid backward on the cold rock. He tried not to cry out, but his old injuries were exploding from pain, and he was collecting some impressive new ones as well. The creature was immobilizing him. It would feed next. It stood over him and opened its cavern-like mouth. Russ could see row after row of sharp teeth. He closed his eyes, cursing himself for being so stupid. Then came the whistling sound. It was something large, moving through the air very quickly. When the death blow didn't come, Russ opened his eyes and saw the creature peering upward into the sky, searching for the cause of the sound. The whistling was getting closer with every passing second. It reminded Russ of the sound of a rocket. The oxygen was thinner and so the friction from the wind produced a much higher pitch. What it really sounded like was a child screaming. Out of the darkness overhead came two white ships in the shape of eggs plunging through the sky. They were ten feet in radius and landed heavy side first, as if powered only by inertia and gravity. When they hit, one on either side of the huge creature, they cracked in half with a thunderous crash. From inside the ship on the left side, an arm thrust forward, knocking away the cracked pieces of the outer wall. A head followed. It was remarkably like watching something hatch from a giant egg. It didn't hurt that the creature that emerged was covered with tropical-colored feathers and had a broad beak. Its black, pupilless eyes held the intelligence that Russ hadn't been able to find in the eyes of the ratbirds. This new bird fully emerged from the egg, breaking through the last of the thin, cracked shell. It was clad in feathers of blue and green, standing seven feet tall on thin, Z-shaped legs. It was smoking a cigarette. Sia, ia, suo, u, the giant bird yelled. Two more creatures broke through the shell of the egg on the right. They weren't birds, but insects. Looking like a pair of twin mantises, they had identical triangular heads and deep black elongated eyes. Unlike the bird, they were dressed in uniforms, loose-fitting orange jumpsuits with patches on the sides.
The jumpsuits were roughly cut to allow the free movement of their segmented legs, which had menacing-looking hooks branching inward from the inside of each thigh and calf. A fraction of a second later, the horrific cyclops sprung toward the bird, howling a primordial yawp. The cigarette fell from the bird's mouth as it yanked a rifle off its back. It didn't have time to fire. Fortunately, one of the mantises had yanked a small tube from a fanny pack around its waist and lobbed it at the bird's feet. An acrid yellow smoke rose from the contents of the tube, briefly enveloping the bird and the cyclops. The cyclops, with its enormous nose, took the brunt of the venom, hacking and coughing, its small single puffy eye hole spilling out translucent mucus. Yeah, the bird demanded, its own black eyes raw and puffy. The mantises didn't respond. They'd both drawn twin clubs from inside their egg. For a moment, the club seemed like a poor weapon choice against such a massive creature. But as the mantises gripped their hilts, the clubs crackled with lethal electricity, two personal lightning storms against the outline of the dark, moonless night. The cyclops did not like the electricity. It pounded its chest, once more releasing a savage cry. But it also took a step backward. By now the bird had the rifle raised and steady. A needle projectile buried itself deep in the cyclops's neck. The cyclops yelped, batting at the needle with its heavy hands. All it managed to do was dig the projectile in deeper. For a moment longer it continued to thrash around, trying to get its meaty fingers around the edge of the needle. But as Russ watched, the beast grew unnaturally weary. Its movements slowed to a near stop, until it was finally, futilely batting at its neck like a tired, angry baby. It let out one more pathetic cry, and then collapsed to the ground. The bird shuffled forward and fired another needle into the cyclops' neck. It pulled a small tablet from somewhere beneath its feathers and held it up to the monster. Scrit, ictus, iptic one mantis said. Ah, saw, ee-ah-oo, ee-ah-oo, the bird barked back. It looked disappointed about something. They seemed to be having a conversation. The mantis's voices were more guttural, while the bird's voice danced musically across octaves. They understood each other, but seemed to be speaking completely different languages. Midway through the exchange, the bird grew frustrated. It gestured at Russ with one long wing, then it advanced toward him, its rifle pointed lazily in Russ's direction. Both mantises turned their elongated faces to look at him. They lifted their clubs and electricity crackled through the air. I come in peace, Russ said. The bird kept advancing, weapon raised. I come in peace, motherfucker, Russ said, taking a quick step backward. If you shoot that thing at me, I'm going to have to take it away from you. The bird raised its rifle and shot Russ in the neck. 12. Russ Thank goodness we didn't kill it, Russ heard a voice say. The earth thing or the vacuole, another voice asked. The vacuole, of course. I've never even heard of an earth thing. I feel like a racist prick. I saw a monster stomping around chewing on that bird, and I figured it had to be our target. Russ's eyes fluttered open, but his vision was blurry, unfocused. He was lying on a long medical table inside a steel room. He tried to sit up, and his head began to spin. 
Take it easy there, friend, a voice said. We hit you with a pretty heavy sedative. Russ's vision swam back into focus, and he saw the bird grinning down at him, an odd sight in and of itself because its bottom beak was cupped and it had no teeth. Where am I? Russ asked. You're in the med ward of my ship, the bird told him. You speak English? Russ asked, amazed. What the fuck is English? The bird asked. You mean how can we understand each other? I gave you a liquid translator while you were out. Makes the whole extradition process easier when the perp can understand me. Perp? Do you only know how to ask questions? The bird snapped. Who's asking? We scanned your ankle, a second creature said. It was one of the mantises he'd seen with the electrical clubs. Its voice held more warmth, and Russ thought it might be female, if giant alien mantises were even gendered. You're Russell Wesley of San Diego, California. You had a conditional work visa for one day, but you cracked it off. You've been on the lam ever since. Not exactly, Russ said. It's kind of a big misunderstanding. The mantis pushed him back on the table. She retrieved a wand from a nearby cabinet. It looked a lot like the wand the other exterminators had used to check Russ's injuries during what felt like a thousand nights ago in the forest outside Evanstown. The mantis ran the wand along Russ's right ankle, where the nanobots still held fast. Then she read from the small digitized readout on the wand. If this creature is found anywhere in Alliance space, return it, dead or alive, to the nearest immigration outpost. The mantis shrugged at Russ. It's a standard message that triggers any time a governing ring is popped open. We are legally within our rights to kill you. Hell, it's actually our job. You're exterminators. The mantis shifted to show him the patch on her right shoulder. For a moment, it appeared in alien symbols. But as Russ stared, the letters rearranged themselves until it read, Gassum and Trashum Unlimited. We specialize in interplanetary swarm migrations, dangerous fungal mass, crop dusting, that sort of thing. Or at least we used to. Times are tough now, so we try for just about any job that pops up on the Merc board. I'm an exterminator too, Russ said. You're not, the bird told him. You are a dangerous species that has illegally jumped ecosystems. I am. Russ assured them. An exterminator, I mean. Or at least, I will be soon. I have an offer from Intergalactic Exterminators, Inc. Baren's crew, the bird said, snuffing out his cigarette. We know them. An okay bunch. His deep black eyes opened in realization. They have an earthling on their crew already, don't they? You as fast as the Toreador? Nope, Russ said. That's too bad. Can you tell us what you were doing on a demilitarized planet without any credentials, weapons, or survival gear? Or a way home? Another misunderstanding, Russ said. You seem to have a lot of those. Both creatures waited for Russ to explain further. When he didn't, the mantis said, First time in space. Yeah. Welcome to the wider world. Did you pee your pants? Russ had, of course, peed his pants right when the Cyclops, the Vakwal, had initially lumbered over to him. I did, Russ told them both, and I'm not sorry. 
That thing was scary as hell. Second we exited our E-flyer, I saw it lumbering around and thought it was the job, the bird admitted. Turns out it's native to the area and critical to the ecological balance of that hemisphere. Guess it keeps the wild bird population down. The murderous bastard. He shook his bird head disapprovingly. You were the job. The tiny, scared pink thing clutching the unpowered waypoint. You humans don't look dangerous. But as a species, it seems you have an abysmal ecological rating. One of the worst I've ever seen. Hell, I've hunted herd animals that fart thunderclouds of methane gas, and they still don't destroy planets as fast as a pack of earthlings apparently can. Seems fair, Russ agreed. So what happens to me? We follow protocol, the mantis told him. Take you to the immigration outpost orbiting Galliopea. And I hate fucking immigration outposts, the bird grumbled. No offense, but you're barely worth the peanuts we're making for bringing you in. The bird grinned at Russ, but spoke to the mantis. Maybe we should just leave him where we found him? We're not doing that, the mantis assured Russ. I'm Elenia. The other Cruxfus you saw was my sister, Nulinia. You can call us Laney and Linny if it's easier. This big tropical brute is named Tyranna. Call me Ty, the bird said gruffly. Come on, I guess we can make a quick trip to the land of the robots. From the tip of the nose of the ship, Russ watched a sky bridge unfurl and attach to an orbiting satellite. The satellite didn't stop spinning, and the starship had to punch its thrusters every few seconds to keep pace with it. Laney watched Russ watch the bridge and correctly guessed his worry. It's all automated, she assured him. The ship and the satellite are linked by a paralleling program. Just hold on to the handrails tightly and you'll be fine. And wear this. It's called a rebreather. Laney was a good foot taller than Russ, so she lowered the rebreather over his mouth with ease and locked it in place with a twist. The device was similar to a gas mask. It covered his face, from the bridge of his nose to the underside of his chin. Around the mouth was a ventilated canister about the size of a soup can. When he reflexively took a deep breath, he could feel the canister rumbling softly. Laney worked at the buckles of two adjustable straps that wrapped around the back of his head to hold it in place. Russ felt like a little kid being dressed by his insect mother. She handed him four long sleeves of dense polymer. He heard her voice over a speaker hidden inside the straps of the rebreather. Compression gear. Put these over your legs and arms or you'll freeze to death. They'll cinch tight once you have them on. I know this is a pain in the ass, but immigration outposts are under municipal jurisdiction, and everybody gets pissed when we use taxes to modernize them. Worse yet, since they're classified as homeland security, we don't have access to their incoming waypoint coordinates, which is why we have to do this the old-fashioned way. Laney pulled a release valve. A series of small tubes along the wall sprayed a gooey substance into the air. Russ watched as the substance solidified into a thin, translucent membrane. A light switched on on the other side of the membrane, and the starship door began to lift open. Russ pulled the compression gear over his arms and legs. The right leg sleeve was long enough that he kept pulling it, stretching it over his crotch, his belly, and his chest. It hooked over his shoulders and cinched tight. Laney checked his helmet one more time, 
then pushed him through the membrane. Russ felt it stretch thin, tearing involuntarily against his weight and reforming almost instantaneously behind him. The whole of the dark, shining universe appeared before him. Laney continued to talk to him through the helmet's comm system. Just last year, these outposts would have been manned by organics, but the UAIB found a cheaper way to keep them running. Aside from the medical staff, they're now completely operated by SAS units, which I'm familiar with SAS units, Russ told her. How is a fully functioning robot cheaper than a person? No health insurance, no disability pay, no time off, no sick days, no retirement, no meals, no bathrooms. Think of the savings on plumbing alone. The upfront cost is more, but the long term is much less expensive. Then she continued, first thing the Border Patrol is going to do is quarantine you and run you through a cleanse to remove any bacteria, parasites, and toxins from your body. It's a diverse urban ecosystem, so we've got to keep out the bad germs. Unfortunately, the process flushes all medication and most of your helpful probiotics. If you end up with any memory of this conversation, you'll want to eat a lot of yogurt. The space bridge was a far-in-the-future descendant of a handmade rope bridge. Taut, thin metal handrails were the only visible thing keeping Russ from drifting into space, and they were only waist-high. Laney kept talking, but Russ didn't hear another word. He had stepped off the deck of Tyranno's ship. They'd lost gravity when they slipped through the membrane, and Russ had to concentrate to get his feet to fall in the right place. It was like walking through marshmallows. On every side, a million stars twinkled back at him. Without the buffering of an atmosphere, each star was an explosion of energy, a thousand blazing points of light. There was a planet to Russ's left that the satellite outpost was using to guide its slow rotation. The planet loomed just below Russ's eye level, a giant purple god of swirling gas and fire. For a moment, the satellite, the starship, and the open-faced bridge that Russ stood on danced slowly together in a circle, moving in perfect synchronicity, the starship letting out little puffs of propulsion to keep the balance. Russ held on to the railing in the direct center of the dance, watching in awe as the entire vast universe spun around him. It was the greatest moment of his life. And that's when they'll send you home, Laney concluded. Russ reached the entrance to the satellite and once more pushed through a gooey membrane. He snapped back into normal movement, fighting through the last suck of the membrane and into normalized gravity. The journey across the space bridge had taken less than five minutes, but his feet and legs felt like they were draped in weights. Laney followed. Do you have any questions? she asked. I know Tyranno's itching to get us back to work. You're not coming with me? We already tagged you in the system. No matter what, we'll get our commission now that you're here. I just came across to get the rebreather and sleeves back. They're not free, you know. Oh. Russ said, peeling off the compression gear. Thanks for the lift, anyway. He looked into Laney's deep black insect eyes for a hint of what emotion might be hidden there. She just nodded her triangular head. A strange look passed over her eyes. We kind of just fucked you over, Russ. I'm not sure you understand that. By rescuing me from certain doom? No, by bringing you here. It's our job. 
but that doesn't make it the right thing to do. If the SAS want to mind wipe you, you won't have much chance to avoid it. They're going to try and mind wipe me. That's what they've been trying to do since I met them. There's nothing worse that could happen to you. The UAIB likes to say a mind wipe is more humane than murder, but it's not. Maybe if it worked like it was supposed to, but the science is unreliable, and the doctors aren't doctors. They're poorly educated med techs, fresh out of cert school. So how do I get off this satellite with my brain intact? Don't let them get you to the med ward. Like all computers, the SAS are imperfect. They glitch, they blitz, they crash. Best way to make that happen is to try and get their basic functions working against each other. My rich aunt has a domestic SAS that cleans her house. Fucking thing can factor pi to the one thousandth, but it always gets stuck on the rocking chair. Always. I'm surprised your aunt has a rocking chair, Russ told her. Don't let them mind wipe you, she said. People are never the same after. Her large oval eyes drooped. Don't be so worried, Russ said. I'll be fine. Laney nodded. Maybe I'll see you on the job, she said, giving him a small, sad smile, like she didn't believe a word coming out of her own mouth. Man, those government immigration robots mean business. And that mind-wiping thing is no joke. Fortunately, Russ is a master at accidentally destroying technology. Will this natural skill help him escape? Or will the robots clear him of his memories and return him to Earth as if none of this had ever happened? Stay tuned for more. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on CamCat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are always available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms, and our background episodes, where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.